Good. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's start with the uh, most important thing. So, uh, Paul, how is my audio? I mean, we fiddled with the microphone last week, so I just want to make sure it's okay. Yeah, now your audio is perfect. Paul's audio is a bit muffled. I don't know what's microphone you're using. Shall I shall I put on off the the, um, the AirPods or? If, if you can use a, a different microphone, the microphone in the AirPods tend to suppress the audio. Uh, so are we ready? I'm yes. ready. Ready. All right. Welcome to FinTech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of FinTech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fintech Daydreaming. My name is Ville Sointu. Uh, I'm here with you. I'm going to be your host for this episode. But as always, uh, I cannot do this without my a good friend and co-host, Paul Krugdahl. So, Paul, uh, we survived the uh, Nordic Fintech Summit, mostly, I think. So what did you like? What, how did you like it? I thought it was fantastic. I mean, we already did the summary of it and uh, told people what we thought. Still a little bit disappointed I didn't get to do that stage dive, but uh, maybe we can line that up for some time in the future. Some special event where I can do a stage dive and you can get your experience of watching me slap onto the concrete floor or something similar. But um, no, I, 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 I looking forward to doing it again next year. Yeah, indeed. The reason, I, the reason I asked, of course, because yes, we did the summary, but that summary was before we had the after party and the karaoke. So, I mean, I, you know, if there's something you want to share about that, that's, a, that's another story. But maybe not for this episode. Uh, because well, I, I, I can share that I can't sing. <laughs> I won't say anything more than that. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, uh, so, you, know, you know, since this is, the, this is the week when we're recording, which is after the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, we could spend like an hour just talking about who should have won the con uh, contest, because Finland, of course, practically won it. But, uh, but that's another story as well. But we're not here to talk about Eurovision. We are here to talk about fintech. And uh, as always, we have a fantastic guest lined up for you, you today. Uh, one of my favorite topics we're going to be talking about, which is the machine economy and, and IoT, I think. But before we get to all of that goodness, let's uh, let's get uh, get to our guest as well. So, uh, Paul, good to meet you. How are you doing today? Thanks, Villa. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Um, pretty good to be here. Um, yeah, looking forward to an exciting episode. Yeah, so tell our audience, uh, who are you? What do you do? Um, I'm Paul, I'm one of the two co-CEOs at Links4 and also one of the founders um, of Links4. Uh, we, we focus on pay-per-use financing for um, manufacturing equipment. All right. So how did you uh, end up where you are today? I mean, a little, little, little bit of your background. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I started my career um, I think um, eight years ago or something like that in the IoT space. Um, spent there a couple of years. Started as the as the junior project manager, basically. Um, ended up in the in the partnership team there, um, where I built um, cooperation um, between machine builders 
and an IoT platform where we just collect the different IoT data, analyze that, and and give back the information um, how efficient you you have used the equipment in your in your factory. Um, after that, um, I spent uh, a little bit more than two and a half years in at Red Bull in at the energy drink company from Austria. Um, I spent also there um, this time in the partnership team. And um, after this time, I thought it's time to do something by myself um, or to do something with data, um, use something what I've learned um, at the very beginning um, from the IT space. Um, yeah, and then I came up with the with the idea to link or to use IoT data um, not only for internal um, purposing uh, purpose like um, yeah how to increase your productivity, but also use the data for financial products, and that was basically a starting point of Links Four. Um, obviously, there was a lot of discussion going on; it was not um, that on point from the very beginning. Um, but then we learned. Um, that on the one hand, traditional banks and, and leasing companies and also insurance companies, they have they don't have access to IT data and they also don't know what this exactly is. Um, and then we build a tech platform to collect the data, but also be um, be now an a platform uh, where we can finance everything by ourselves. So basically, we ended up to being a leasing company, um, just focusing on pay per use. So this is kind of. Yeah, my story so far, um, and now we're currently in the, in the growth phase of the company. All right. It's really good to have these uh, fintech founders as, as our guests, even though the, the name of our podcast is Fintech Daydreaming. I sometimes feel that we, we talk to a lot of bankers and a lot of uh, technology vendors that are on the larger side of the spectrum. So it's really nice to talk to these uh, well, earlier stage uh, fintechs, even though you've been around for a while now, I think. But before we get to more to talk more about Lynx4, what is your value proposition and what is your cost, what are your customers doing and all of that goodness, uh, we do have a tradition in the show, which is that we ask our guests to tell a fintech related joke to, uh, to kind of get us into the mood uh, of, of, the pod, of the conversation uh, a little bit. So yeah. I dare to ask if you have a joke to share with us today? Um, yeah, so I have one with me. Um, obviously, it, it will not be good. <laughs> and also, I'm not um, creative. So, uh, but I think it's um, fintech. It's also it's obviously it plays the te technology an important part, and that's why I asked ChatGPT um, for a fintech joke. <laughs> and the answer was basically uh, the joke: <laughs> uh, Why did a banker quit his job? Because he lost interest. <laughs> <laughs> there are many more out there, but I think that's the worst one I found. <laughs> yes, I think uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure we've been doing the podcast now for was more than three years now, and uh, I think we have some version of that joke before, but I'm sure our audience has forgotten. So I think uh, that was perfectly in line what we expect the jokes to be. Well, it's, uh, it's very good recycling, right? We're being uh, we're being very uh, efficient here and looking after the environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, ESG is another big, uh, exactly. you know, theme for us. So I think obviously on, on the joke side as well, not only is it garbage, it's also <laughs> recycled. Yeah, may, may, <laughs> maybe ChatGPT also listen to your podcast and that's why they, <laughs> they have the joke already. I, I like the sound of that. So we could say that we're the top ranked listened to podcast by ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> also, yeah, on, also, another thing we learned uh, in the Nordic Fintech Summit, by the way, we are the largest Nordic Fintech podcast. Uh, by the way, there is, if you know something different, please let us know. But uh, <laughs> as far as we are concerned, we are the largest Nordic uh, Fintech podcast. <laughs> but good, good to get that out of the way. I think we're all warmed up for the actual conversation. And uh, like I mentioned before, uh, this is one of the most fascinating uh, combinations of technologies that I, that I can think of. And this is really uh, about how do we combine machine uh, data, like you mentioned, Paul, uh, in your introduction, to financial services. And Lynx4 is right in the middle of that, as we, as we heard. But uh, the, uh, how did you how did you kind of land from from the background of having IoT data available, uh, and then how did you come up with the idea of uh, using that for for uh, financing or equipment financing? And how wh why did you think that what is the wh what is your value proposition, your unique value proposition when it when it comes to this world, and why do you um, why why do you think you will be successful uh, as links for in this equipment finance? Yeah, I think it's. Um... So, I mean, obviously, oh, my idea was basically we have all the, all the data are, is available. So you, there are ways to capture data, but they're just used internally. So they use it and say, okay, how much downtime I have? How can I increase my productivity? And just use it for internal purpose. Um, because also the technology wasn't ready to bring data from one company to another one in a safe and secure way to, and also trustful way. Hmm. Um, and my idea was basically, okay, it's interesting data knows how, how you can collect the data, but also how you can use and integrate the data and how you can use it internally. And I think it, that is super interesting information for also for external companies, which don't have access to that. And then we started to, to speak to different people. So we, we spoke to different insurance companies, to banks, leasing companies. And they said, okay, that might be interesting. Um, could be good, but it's always a challenge because how can we trust the data? How can we collect the data? Um, who helped me to read the data and all this stuff? Um, and and, and that was kind of the, the starting point to say, okay, um, let's build a platform uh, which can um, securely and trustful um, collect data in a way that it's comparable. It doesn't matter if it's a forklift, an injection welding machine, or a bottling machine. So it's one hour is always in one hour, so you can compare it. And then bring that in a secure way um, to a to cloud infrastructure, um, so that um, a third party can use it for risk management, for 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 pricing, and also for invoicing purpose, uh, without having the fear that um, that the data are are, are not correct. Um, yeah, and, and this was kind of the starting idea, and then um, pretty quickly we learned also that not only the data is issue but also the flexibility so when you look now at traditional financial products like a credit or a lease product you always have to pay the same repayment rate doesn't matter if you use the machine or if you don't use it at all um, and obviously with paper use this will end because with or this will change because at some in some months you maybe use the machine more and in other days you will lose it um, use it less so basically there will be always a different um, invoice which needs to be created and that's it's a simple process actually to create a flexible invoice based on the data. But um, the leasing companies and the banks are having their old systems where it's pretty hard to put in now a new source um, and, and 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 basically send out different invoices every every month. And then obviously there's the whole 
collateral process um, um, as I understand as well. Um, and then we learn that not only this, the data is an issue, but also the flexibility and then also who is taking over um, the usage risk. So the risk that there's less usage than actually what is actually planned. Uh, and then also obviously banks that they're, they have their, their rules that they have to follow. And it's pretty hard for them to bring in or onboard new products and also get their head around the risk because they don't have the data but, and they also don't understand the data in that detail. Um, and that was the decision we made, okay, uh, we're not only building a tech company, which is providing data, but we're also building a fintech, basically, um, having um, the data tech infrastructure, um, but also the financial capabilities to, um, to, to buy the machines and then to lease it to different um, um, machine operators. And then we basically, or we are, in fact, um, a leasing company. Um, we're just focusing on paper use, which is a little bit different than traditional leases. So just just to understand from from you know, give me a little bit more clarity. I think Villa, you've you've looked into this a lot more than I have. So this is quite new to me. So for the next 20 minutes, you're going to get a lot of idiot questions from me, but hopefully some <laughs> of my listeners or our listeners will be, be happy for that. Are you just a matchmaker are you, are you sitting there in the middle between the 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 consumer or the 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 companies using the equipment and then the equipment manufacturing companies or do you actually buy the equipment and then put it onto your books and then lease it on a pay to uh, your consumption based model to the end consumer yeah it's the second way um you have described it so we buy the machines from the equipment manufacturers from the oems um, and then we lease it via on the paper use basis to, to the machine operators. So we're not a matchmaker. We are actually an, a fully leasing con um, company. So everything works exactly the same when you would traditionally finance the, the machine with the ma major difference that um, you only pay back when you actually use the machine. So that must mean that you actually have a fairly high upfront investment to be able to 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 buy that equipment and that also means that you need to somehow do a certain amount of calculations to ensure that you don't basically overcommit on on this equipment so how, how do you ensure that you basically don't go out of business <laughs> um so um, obviously we have different refinancing sources uh, one for example is an, an own build up um, equipment fund uh, which we use for refinancing purpose um, that's basically where this cash is coming coming from, where we can pay upfront 100% of the purchase price to the machine builder. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously what is important um, to measure and to estimate the, the plant utilization correctly and to build in the correct uh, or the right or the appropriate um, risk margin, basically. Mm -hmm. So what we have done, we have analyzed... Um, from over, I think, two, two and a half thousand machines, over, I don't know, 40 million data points um, from different machines over four or five years. We also have this kind of COVID dip in and everything. And there we learned pretty good, um, okay, how does an automotive company, for example, in, in Sweden, uh, normally, or or in Finland, normally uses, I don't know, an, an punching machine or injection molding machine. And then we also know how is injection molding machine used in, in the automotive industry in Germany um, or 
across Europe or, or in Asia or in the US or North America. And I think um, that's super important information to have. And I think that's also one of our um, big advantage that we have because we have so many historic data, what we can use for, for pricing um, to understand um, the risk and also to make sure that the risk is actually um, not a best guess. It's, a, it's actually, it's, it's a calculated risk. So now I've, I've got just one last question. Yeah. Yeah. You can take over right here, right? But some, sometimes it's it's interesting to, to get lessons learned and experiences. So, I mean, have you ever got that calculation wrong? Have you ever sort of sat back and gone, oh, bollocks, we absolutely messed this one up or, you know, or have you always managed to get it right? Um, and I mean, until now we, we have been maybe lucky <laughs> or the data is super <laughs> correct or our risk models are perfect, yeah. uh, but we haven't, haven't made a big mistake until now. So I think everything is, um, until now in rate in the range, what we have planned, our portfolio performs at the moment at 101%. Um, so it's actually an, a little bit of overusage. Yeah. Um, this can be obviously a sign that we are maybe too conservative, mm. but I think, um, yeah, we're doing in that that way currently a good job and, and we haven't haven't had any fail until now. Fantastic. Okay. So let's break down the uh, the process a little bit. So try, we're just trying to understand all sides of, of, of what you do and what is your unique uh, value in that in that value chain. So starting from the uh, from the equipment itself. So let's say you make you find an equipment manufacturer that would like to uh, get these equipment leased out and have them off their balance sheet. I think that's the usual prerequisite uh, for for an equipment manufacturer that would be interested in your services. Uh, then what happens next? So uh, do you go and install sensors into the equipment? Do you go and inspect the equipment? Uh, and then how do you get the data flowing uh, first and then we can go into the uh, financial uh, balance sheet yeah. side of things yeah i think um with the data side it's um, actually not a huge um issue anymore to get access to the data because there was this kind of forward industry 4.0 initiative the last couple of years and a lot of oems and also machine operators have done a brilliant job because they have their own condition monitoring and systems in place, which basically I have started my, my career at the very beginning. So, um, so what was more our goal to build a platform which can be connected to all the different um, industrial protocols. So you need to understand that every machine has an own kind of mini um, PC um, and um, this PC speaks a certain language. Um, so-called industrial protocols. And there are many of that available. And uh, we needed to find a way that our platform can speak all these different languages to collect the data from the machine um, PC or so-called PLC actually. Um, and uh, that was more the big thing uh, because we don't need to install any hardware at, at any machine anymore. Uh, we just want to align with the machine of, um, manufacturer or with the equipment operator, um, how can we get access to this kind of protocol, which is already pre-installed and then which can already read all the data and store it internally in their PLC. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as this is once aligned, it's a poorly software thing, 
uh, we can use it for all the different um, equipment or for the same equipment types um, from one um, single machine manufacturer. So this is then super scalable, but you just need to do once this kind of setup. Um, and this is how it's done. So do you, do you ask for historical data from, from new customers that you onboard? So do you need like to have a lot, lot of uh, history of, of how this equipment has been used in that specific manufacturer? Or do you rely completely on, on the data sets that you have already collected yourselves? Yeah. No, we always ask for historic data because um, it's always better to have more data available. Um, the historic data, what we have, I think, are a good guidance. Um, when we don't have any data, there's, we can use that one as well, but we also use it for benchmarking. So what what is um, what, what kind of plant usage the equipment operator um, assumes for the next couple of years, and then we can benchmark it within our data. Um, is it, can it be correct or not? Yeah. But also we ask for, for the historic data if any are available. And then we can also do the benchmarking, see how's the fluctuation, seasonality, and so on, which is obviously important to, to know. Okay, so a bit of a side question, but with great data becomes great responsibility, right? So uh, <laughs> is there any problems with, uh, with uh, data protection or privacy uh, in these questions? I would imagine that many of this equipment is being used historically by multiple customers uh, who might have uh, requirements to protect their usage data. Is this a problem in your space or not? Um, I would say it's not a, not, not a program, but it's a um, 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 topic what you openly need to discuss and, um, and you need the right infrastructure and the right security, um, security system built up so that it's sure that this data cannot be yeah, lent at any competitors or on the internet. I think that's super important because um, these companies are super keen on that data. Um, and I think um, the big value what we bring in with, with the pay-per-use finance, the, from the very beginning, it's clear that we need to get access to the data. So there's no discussion about that. It's more like what kind of way um, accept my security team um, my cybersecurity team that um, I can share the data in a third way. And I think um, this is the topic what we needs to be addressed, but until now we always found a solution. So um, we haven't lost um, a deal or 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 a project because um, of the IoT connectivity until now. <laughs> but I'm assuming from a data perspective, really the, what you're picking up is is hours of of usage, right? So how many hours has this engine been running for or or how many hours has this equipment been operational rather than any other data points? So is there really that much uh, risk around that data getting out? Um, so we're not only collecting the the operating hours or, or the, the produced units. We also um, track different things like when you think about a um, bottling machine, um, you also think um, how much water consumption a bottling machine has and how many bottles they have produced so that you can build cor correlation models behind that and check if if this can be correct, whatever they, they, they have reported. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, is it critically? I think it depends on the industry. Yeah? When you think about the automotive industry, um, even if, if they know, if a competitor would know how many operating hours you have around the factory, or how many pieces you have, or how many cars you have produced. I think this is super critical. So um, there, we, you really need to take care. 
Okay, so moving on to the next stage in the process. So now you have secured the, the historical data, you have secured that you're able to read the data from the machines, uh, you have made the agreement with the equipment manufacturer and now it's there on your balance sheet. Uh, how do you create the, the pricing? for the paper use models that you're going to be doing. So, I mean, you, you, have, the, you have this, I would suppose, some kind of an AI algorithm or, or risk modeling that allows you to land at a certain pricing. Uh, maybe, I mean, we talked a lot about the, already about this, uh, you know, you use the historical data, you use the patterns. Do you use any other uh, external data sources? So, for example, that you, if you know that the equipment is going to be used in a certain, certain region, in certain conditions or weather conditions, do you use those kind of data points to be smarter with the predictions or do you rely on higher level of consumption data? Um, so, I think the, I mean, obviously, we just did the same pricing like, um, like you would do with traditional lease, yeah? you also need to do the, or the risk analysis, um, make make sure that we have um, a risk spread um, or credit risk spread yeah, on that. And then basically we need to add the usage risk uh, spread. And this is basically calculated through the through the algorithm that we have developed. Um, but also what you mentioned, we also take under consideration which country uh, the machine is used and so on. Uh, so this also um, um, is part of the entire pricing engine. Okay, and that, that lands you at a pricing level which you think will be profitable for you over uh, a certain amount of time. Uh, um, do you make equipment deals then? Do you make these contracts like just you know pay as you go and then drop it or is it more like over several years? What's the framing that you yeah. usually um, normally, you have a, a certain minimum contract duration, so you agree on that um, upfront because this kind of um, contract duration will also be um, impact the how much you pay per operating hours, for example. Um, and and that's basically then fixed, yeah. Uh, but you can choose um, between I don't know three years and ten years, whatever you think is the best solution for for this equipment. Okay, and to be clear, the, the users of the equipment, so basically the customers that pay you, these are also businesses, so this is B2B, not B2C. Yeah, yes, sorry sorry to mention, I haven't mentioned that, so we only do B2B. Yeah, yes, okay. It's, it's normally factories, um, global automotive supplying companies or um, food averaging companies, um, yeah, something like that. And Daryl was hoping I could lease my next lawnmower from you, but obviously not. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> Is that something that you might be looking into in the future or not? Um, I think it's too small, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. Um, okay. So you really need, yeah, I think it's too small for, for PPUs, yeah. Okay. at least for us. Okay. But, but I, I am wondering, I mean, we're talking about very large uh, industrial equipment here. Uh, at some point in time, you, you have to decommission this so it becomes your responsibility to uh, to decommission it, to take it apart, to remove it from the customers. And then what do you do with it? Yeah, so I think that's um, one risk what we don't take. So and also what we don't like is the secondary market risk. Um, and um, we approach it that way that um, the the machine operator has a purchase option. So they can, can buy the equipment um, at the end of the contract duration. Um, or uh, we have the option to to sell it back to certain um, dealers or to certain um, machine uh, manufacturers who take it back and then they basically refurbish it and then sell it in the secondary market. 
Okay, so you don't end up yourselves, you know, trying to sell off old equipment on... Yeah, I mean, actually, <laughs> yeah, our office is too small. Even we are now moving to our, for time, bigger office, but <laughs> don't have place for such large machines here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, don't, we don't see any tractors behind you or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not now, not now. <laughs> yeah, you're going to need a bigger garage for those things. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but okay, uh, let me actually take a step back before we go to the decommissioning phase. So the data streams that you use to calculate the amount of usage, this usually creates a natural question is that the, the users of this equipment are suddenly incentivized to fake the data. So they might want to try to disable the sensors, so they might want to mess around with uh, how much the equipment is actually being used so how reliant are you on the actual individual sensor data how do you how do you make sure that this you faking of data streams doesn't happen because it has a direct correlation into the uh, amount of amount that these companies pay for yeah. using this equipment um i think uh, what you what you just described is maybe I know the, the larger companies, uh, you know, you have the purchase department, the finance department who are basically deciding which kind, kind of machines are going with, with paper use. And then you have the operational business, uh, which are kind of actually using the machines. So basically often the operational business, they don't really know how the machine has been financed. So I think that, that there's a, a low probability that they actually really think now, okay, I'll use more this machine instead of this one because I only pay that for um, as, as, a, as a user. So I think that's a low probability. But nevertheless, I'm obviously, we have asking quite a lot <laughs> ourselves these questions and how we can tackle it. I think um, we obviously build some, um, some things in our contracts so or some clauses to protect ourselves from that. But also from a technical point of view, we build up the system in, in two ways to secure that. And the first is, as I mentioned, we go directly to the PLC. That means um, if they fake the data or the sensors, which are already built in with the, or will be delivered with the machine, um, they will fake their own reporting systems as well. So when mm -hmm. someone is using the data internally, uh, they will also report the, the wrong data. So that's one thing. And then the second is, and the short example, which I have explained before, was the correlation. So we check, for example, how many bottles have been filled in, but we also check how many liter of water um, was uh, rushing through the machine. And then we see uh, they have 1,000 um, uh, liters of water, but they only reported one bottle of water. Um, and then obviously we know okay, there is kind of a mismatch and then we would dig into that, um, where this is coming from. Um, and then obviously this is just a super, super, super simple um, example. And obviously, there are huger and, and bigger risk models behind that to check the correlations. And mm -hmm. this is also where district data are coming in um, or is coming in to, to help us to build these correlations. Another thing that IoT data is being being used for and has been for quite some time is you know predictive maintenance and predicting mm -hmm. of failures and those sort of things. Do you guys also get involved in, in the maintenance and, and upkeep of, of this equipment? Because in some ways, that will help to uh, to increase your revenue stream right uh, we're not really involved in that um, mainly the paper use equipments are normally also have a full service contract we see we see oem we see machine manufacturer but all the stuff with predictive maintenance um, uptime guarantees and so this is more something like what we cannot really influence 
And also when you build up predictive maintenance models, you really need to have a deep understanding of, of the industry, of the, of, the, of the equipment itself. And this is something where we don't see ourselves at the moment. But I mean, so, so one of the things I'm thinking about there is if a, if a piece of equipment is not being maintained and it, it starts breaking often, that actually affects your revenue stream because you're being paid on the usage of it if it yeah. can't be used. So there has to be some element of correlation there between, you know, the maintenance and upkeep and of that machine versus what you're doing, at least for your own benefit. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... From a legal point of view, um, the, the the machine operators need to do the maintenance um, on a regular regular basis. Um, yeah, but um, obviously if they don't do it, and and um, and we see that they don't do it, and because um, um, and and then we cannot or we can reach our, our targets. Um, we, we we have our rights basically to protect ourselves. But this again coming to the point. The, uh, the equipment user and they're not interested to having a machine which is not maintenance that is not working they actually want to use the machine because if they use it they also make revenues and produce some product so the core interest of them is not trying to sneak now around to have a new machine which i've got maybe for yeah low money or lower money that i would and i would directly purchase it it's more like okay how can i um, optimize my my interim KPIs like the balance sheet effect. How can I survive um, seasonalities? How can I maybe also increase uptimes when when there is the OAM, the OAM also involved? So I think it's more like these things, not like how can I um, try to save some 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 euros here. Hmm. Hmm. So I I want to round off the discussion uh, by talking about the future. So let's uh, try to look at the uh, five to ten year landscape. But before we go there, uh, I do want to round off this uh, this conversation that we had about the uh, the life cycle of the products. Uh, how do you handle the problems? And uh, speaking about the the problems in the in this landscape, uh, rather than asking what are the biggest problems, let me ask it this way: the uh, uh, if you would have a magic wand, I think we did this, done this a couple of times in other episodes as well. If you had a magic wand and you were able to make one big problem disappear uh, from your daily business in this uh, pay-per-use uh, financing, what would that one thing be and why? It's a good question. Spontaneously, <laughs> um, I would say I would see two fields actually. Um, one is um, on the secondary market risk side. So not all OEMs are prepared to take back machines and, and, and push it or refurbish it and then set it in the secondary market as a used machine. Um, I think that's a big issue. And I think it's also, but it's, it's super critical to solve that not only for paper use reasons, but um, it's, it's even more important for ESG reasons. So because when a machine, um, is not used anymore from from one equipment operator um, you can give it back um, the and, and, it, and the mach same machine gets a second life which is um, super important to kickstart the circular economy and i think this is a an, an, an issue which i would love to solve because it has two aspects it has it has a good impact on ourselves yeah um, on the risk side but also has a good impact on 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 the environment so i think yeah, this would be definitely something um, and then the second uh, larger pro issue will be maybe something like um, 
that we have more standards across um, all countries in terms of um, regulatories, um, so that we don't have all these different local laws, obviously. Um, I think people are working with that, but I think um, this can be maybe not in daily business, but when you want to enter new, enter new markets, uh, this can be um, a pain sometimes. So now we've described the uh, the process more or less uh, from from end to end, and uh, concluding with the uh, with these uh, things that we look to improve in the uh, in the ecosystem. But the uh, one thing that I've kind of been wondering about uh, when when I hear the way you work is that how much of that actually can you automate, and how much is still manual work uh, and I would believe that uh, fint small, smaller fintechs like yourselves, the uh, edge would be to have large parts of that automated. So you're able to be very efficient, um, more efficient than traditional leasing companies, for example. Yes. So uh, if you, I mean, if you could kind of have a overall picture, how much are you doing uh, automated and how much do you still need to do on uh, on manual basis? Yeah, I think it's a super important topic. So. Uh most of our process needs to be automated and, and, and digital because otherwise we will not be or will not be able to survive and outcompete traditional companies. Um, I would say in terms of processing, maybe I don't know, 90%, something like that is automated because um, what we need to do once is to align on the IoT interface, which uh, is manual work once um, per equipment or per equipment type. Um, and then when there is the same equipment coming in for a new client, um, someone just needs to add it to, um, uh, to add it to the platform, which is easy work, but someone has to do it manually and it's normally done by, by the OEM itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that's a manual work. And then uh, we are throughout the entire process um, when the machine is, is onboarded, it, it, we get the data, we have the invoicing before closing the contract we have a digital credit assessment, we have a digital KYC and anti-money laundering checks. Um, and then obviously we have um, these this automatic risk models, which uh, gives us insights when something is going wrong or not in the right direction. Um, and then you have basically uh, then also the signature and everything is digital. And then um, at the end of the contract duration, there's where again the manual work um, starts again. Um, so the contract ends and then uh, we get the notification that the LSC is taking over the equipment or not. Um, if yes, everything is, is, is ready to go, you just sign it and it's done. Mm -hmm. um, and then if not, we just um, need to manually um, make use of our rights to sell the equipment to different dealers or machine, machine manufacturers. I think so at the very beginning, when it comes to the IT connectivity the first time, it's manual work. And at the very end, when the contract ends. So, but in between, everything is automated. That's a super high percentage. Uh, I mean, do you see like in five to 10 years that it will be almost fully automated? Can you become almost like an entirely digital company, almost autonomous? I mean, I hope so, but I think it would be a challenge uh, because, um, you know, at the end of the end of the process, um, someone needs to make a decision. The decision is not made by us. Um, we need to wait. Need to wait for the input. So, this is something what we can maybe make automated. So, say, give us a yes or no, and then um, the platform is is working on with, with that input automatically and trigger the different 
um, events. But I think, yeah, will be a challenge, but um, definitely the goal is to have more or less everything automated um, and streamlined because um, this will leverage our efficiency um, pretty, pretty much. So let's, I mean, that's maybe a good segue to, to talk about a little bit about the future. Uh, and I'm, I'm really now want, want us to talk about like 10 years ahead, five years ahead. Uh, what could be, what's the art of possible uh, in this space? Uh, in my mind, when I hear paper use, and uh, I know Paul wanted to get a lawnmower with a, with a paper use contract, <laughs> but uh, maybe something that is uh, maybe a little bit closer, uh, cars, for instance. So if I, for, for example, go to uh, any of the car uh, companies here, here in the Nordics, and I, I want to make a contract, and I want to make that co leasing contract online, they only offer me options for uh, regular leasing companies but uh, and leasing options with fixed prices per month the only parameter being almost like uh, how much you want to drive and how long do you want to keep it but the uh, uh, is this model of paper use something that we could see in 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 the longer term future in a way that i could just go on a website or pick up a mobile application and say that, that this is the car that I want. And then the next thing that happens is that after I sign the, uh, sign the contract at, uh, at the day when this thing is manufactured, it could just drive itself to my, to my door and say, here I am. And then I could just pay for the amount that I actually use that car. Uh, is this something that will happen in the future? Or is your view of the, uh, the longer term future something different in this uh, paper use world? I think definitely so the trend is definitely there um, to go there i don't know if it will happen five or ten years maybe longer i don't know um but um i think it's the way to go because i mean we are now focused exclu exclusively on, on b2p customers but um i think um there will be companies and maybe also ourselves to enter the b2c sector and market i think this is a huge market obviously and as you just mentioned it's a super um, inspiring vision and to have everything online, the car is driving fully automatic um, to your house and you just add your credit card or your cryptocurrency or whatever, and then you just, just use it. So I think um, there will be challenges for sure, because um, when you enter the B2C market, it's, it has different challenges. Like we have discussed before with, you know, customers always try to optimize their cash basically um, and try to be sneaky and um, yeah, find ways and loopholes. Um, but I think yeah, when you crack that one uh, once, I think it's a huge market and it's definitely possible to um, to grow there and to see not only for cars, but there are many things um, in the B2C sector what, what would be interesting for for a paper use model. I actually think that model already exists, Villa. I, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think in Sweden, for instance, I think it's BMW. They have in Stockholm this app and you you pay per use they they have their cars parked a little bit like the bloody scooters that are destroying all of our uh, sidewalks here <laughs> similar sort of system with with the small bmws in in stockholm as an example but that's a bit different because that's like short-term rental so yeah. again uh, what i would like to what i'd like to have is like if i go to let's say let's use a nordic example like if i would like to get a new volvo polestar maybe is a good example of a nordic uh, electric car company uh, so if i would like to get a brand new polestar for me to use and then for the privilege for me to use it i'm okay to pay a small monthly fee but mostly i would like to pay on how do i drive basically not only how much do i drive but maybe even if i drive safely i don't do 
sudden braking, all of this can be measured by the car, then if that could be even baked into the pricing, I think that could even have like a more societal benefit of people being more responsible in the way they use, use this equipment. Uh, is, is that something that is in, in your view of think, thinking as well, as, at least as part of the value chain, Paul? Yeah, I believe definitely. Yeah. I mean, as uh, Paul mentioned before, like in the, the car sharing models, the, uh, sometimes already measure how, yeah, how, how fast you brake or anything like that, or how hard you brake. And they also took that on, on a consideration that they block you, at least in Austria, they sometimes block you then um, to use the service because it's not um, not efficient how you use their cars and they don't want to get destroyed basically too fast, their cars. So I think that's definitely the way um, um, to go and use also the data, what, what will be collected then. And Isn't I think also, not... sorry? So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Paul. Uh, yeah. In other words, I just want, want to to, um, to to mention one example on paper use um, in the car sector, which already exists. I think I'm not sure if it's BMW or some some other German car manufacturer, but they launched their um, seat heating um, paper use model. So basically, you can buy the car. Uh, you don't need to pay upfront the the seat heating. It's already implemented, and only if you use it, you can basically go to the app and say, okay, now I want to have it for. I mean, 10 minutes or whatever and then you just pay for that 10 minutes and not for yeah you don't have to the upfront investment which is i mean yeah seat heating is maybe just a small part of the entire car but it's like um they think about that model also the the larger brands um and um, i think there will be a shift to that definitely yeah, I think it is. It is BMW. But back to what you were saying, Villa. Isn't that what Tesla's doing with their insurances in in the US? You can actually get an insurance, Tesla insurance, based upon how you drive. So you pay based on when you're driving and how you're driving. I think there's been lots of discussions around the fact that Tesla puts up their insurance quite substantially if you drive during the night. But night to them is anything from about nine o'clock in the evening. Uh, so. Lots of, lots of complaints on that one, but I think we're starting to see an awful lot of models like this. We've gone off subject a little bit, but still on subject, <laughs> but off subject, right? We're very much into the car leasing space now. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, but the, I see a lot of correlation between the, the insurance industry uh, and paper use because they also measure this behavior because they also try to limit risk. It's on the other side of that usage in a way. Uh, than this uh, balance sheet financing, uh, but I think there's a lot of similar patterns. Uh, do you work, by the way? I mean, you already mentioned that you expect uh, service contracts for the equipment and things like this. Do you also work with uh, insurance companies to cover parts of your risk? Yeah, yeah. So we work with them. Um, and uh, so some things like, I mean, like, for example, that um, I mean, um, machine breakdown insurance is also mandatory to have. So that just, you know, when something happens to the machine, like, a forklift is driving into a uh, bottling machine, something like that, so that this is also covered. Uh, but I think this is super, like a standard model already in the market. So there is correlation, Paul. I told you. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Which Paul? Yeah. You've got, yeah, yeah, you've got yeah, two balls yeah, here. Which Paul are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> Paul times two. Yeah, anyway, yeah. so uh, it's always fun when we have two Pauls on the podcast. Also, not the first time. Uh, so yeah, it uh, uh, seems to be a, a lot of patterns uh, in today's episode. Uh, 
Uh, but good. Uh, time flies when we're having fun is another saying that we always have uh, on the podcast and we're short, uh, quickly running out of time. But uh, before we round it off, uh, was there anything that uh, we didn't talk about today that uh, you felt like we should have covered, uh, Paul? Mm, no, I think the most important aspect, we, we covered the process, what we do, how we, we see the future, how it works. I think everything is covered. I hope so. <laughs> if not, we need to do a second episode. <laughs> yeah. all right uh so other paul was there anything you wanted to ask that we didn't get to yet absolutely not no i mean like i said i went into this completely blind i know about iot devices i know about iot data but in the context that we've discussed today this was a an eye-opener for me i've definitely learned something new and uh and i still have an awful lot of questions but paul we can take that offline maybe over a beer at some point in time right would be great yeah yeah. Yes, indeed. They they do have good beer in Austria. Uh, yeah. We were just there, by the way, uh, for the Moby Forum, so uh, we know. <laughs> and and there, there, we've got another chance for me to say, and I was born in Austria. Oh, really? Uh, wh yeah. Where? I was born in Vienna. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Also. <laughs> so, okay. So we have a lot of patterns now, even more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right but with that being said uh, i think we're gonna round it round it off and uh, uh, continue the discussion offline and we will definitely bring this online as well uh, if we if we find a good spot to uh, continue the discussion and hear some fantastic success stories perhaps uh, from links four but uh, before we do that uh, paul of course uh, we would like our, our listeners to know how can they uh, find out more about links four and yourself and how can they be in touch the easiest would be um, on our homepage um, or on, 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 on links4.io or also um, obviously LinkedIn, um, super happy to reach out to me. And um, yeah, if you don't find me, maybe Wille or Paul can, can assist you to get me, to get you to me. <laughs> we will be more than happy to, of course. Awesome. Good. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Uh, so and uh, it's time to close this week's episode of, uh, of FinTech Daydreaming. Before we go, as usual, do remember to subscribe, like, send us a review, uh, recommend us to your friends, ask us to be in your in your event, corporate event. Uh, we do fun panel discussions and debates uh, on stage if you want us to. So uh, just be in touch. Uh, we would be more than happy to have a discussion on how we can get that done as well. So the usual things being said, uh, it's time to close this episode. And this has been FinTech Daydreaming. This is FinTech Daydreaming. <laughs>